0: Hi, I'm Robert Hilburn, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Have a great day.
1: Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. The
2: friend of the devil is a friend of mine, and I guess that means you. Christian Swain here, the rock and roll archaeologist, coming to you from San Francisco HQ of Pantheon Podcasts. It's a shout out time. Last week I raised a glass to Luann Daris, who became our latest patron on Patreon. Thank you, Luann. And uh, you too can go to patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. Five bucks will get you a mention here, folks. Uh, I, you know, I just realized it might get you two mentions. This week, I want to point the finger at our social media diggers and give a shout out to our Twitter buddy, Marty Catani. Check out all that Marty does on Twitter. He is always promoting great rock and roll themed spaces on the interwebs, including all the Pantheon goodness. Also, Marty is a badass rock and roll cartoonist. Check out his page at MartyTunes to know more. All right. Uh, now, of course, you, too, can spend time with us at Facebook at The r Instagram at r and Archaeology, and on Twitter at r Archaeology. Uh, Marty will be there, and uh, as will Daryl, our social media master, making the trains run on time. Nugs, 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 nugs.net, nugs, nugs.net, Nugs. .net is the destination for live music on demand. Uh, I, I know, I, I spent a fair amount of time on it last weekend. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Pearl Jam, Metallica, and Dead & Company, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or uh, even from 40 years ago. I, I recently listened to a show by uh, the Blue motherfuckers, the infamous string dusters from the Blue Ox Music Festival uh, just the week before. This uh, had a great effect of uh, confusing my neighbors who thought they knew my musical tastes. Uh, Let's just say my head exploded with the string dusters and uh, maybe my neighbors did as well. So let me tell you, there's something for every music fan to explore on Nugs.net. It's available on desktop, iOS, and Android apps, Sonos, Blue OS. Uh, Just like us here at Pantheon, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics. So they are offering new subscribers like you a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net backslash deeper digs and sign up today. And uh, if you already have a subscription... You know, think about giving the gift of live music to a friend. Uh, again, nugs.net backslash deeper digs for 35% off an annual subscription. Okay, that's it for this week. Let's get to our guests.
0: Oh, think, yeah, think
2: That's the Rolling Stones with their 1965 quickly composed The Under-Assistant West Coast Promotion Man, recorded at Chess Studios in Chicago, a uh, hollowed ground for the British blues seekers. Uh, by the way, it's the B-side for the American version of Satisfaction. The song is a fun take on their promo guy, George Sherlock, uh, now immortalized in song, uh, R.I.P. George. I bring this up because today's show is on the people who promoted the great bands of rock and roll. Now, not the under assistants, but the giants of the trade. And not a record man uh, like George, but the concert promoters. Uh, a brand new thing. In 1965, we are talking the Frank Barcelonas, uh, Bill Grahams and Harvey Goldsmiths, guys and yes, mostly men who could make you or break you out on this newly created touring circuit. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of having in studio with us Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan, the producer-director team for the new documentary now being shown at film festivals around the country called The Show's The Thing, The Legendary Promoters of Rock. I was lucky enough to be invited to the Docklands Film Festival in Marin recently by Molly and Philip, and we had a great time. Of course, any peek into a hidden corner of rock and roll is a must for me, should be for you, and let me tell you, the film does not disappoint. It charts the beginning of the real rock shows and the concept of modern touring, starting in the mid-1960s when a young talent agent, Frank Barcelona, opened Premier Talent Agency in 1964 because these new rock and roll acts weren't getting treated with any respect by the established agencies. He once famously said they were being treated like the assholes of show business lower than the rodeo. So, like a mafia Don carves out the territories, he did so across the good old U.S. of A. Frank handed out turf to guys like uh, Larry Majid and Ron Delzinar, the Balkan brothers, and, of course, hometown hero of San Francisco, Bill Graham. Most of those names you may not know, or if you do, it's because you are from the town where their names were printed on the tickets. That's why this film needed to get made. Employed to tell the story are many of the original characters still living, uh, young as the artists they were working with at the time and now as old as the acts that are still out there touring, and a special selection of stars like Bob Geldof, uh, John Bon Jovi, and Carlos Santana. It's a big convoluted story. But Molly and Philip wrangle it into a cohesive and compelling documentary filmed with great music, of course, and some fun animation to help tell the tales. Okay, let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan.
1: John and Mitchie were getting kind of itchy just to leave the folk music behind. Saul and Denny working for a penny, trying to get a fish on the line.
2: Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan, welcome to Deeper Dixon Rock. How are you guys doing today?
3: Great. Thanks. Glad to be here.
2: I think you've flown in uh, from New York to uh, show the film that we're going to talk about, uh, the show's The Thing, at a film festival up in uh, Marin County. Is that right?
4: Yes, it's called Docklands, Mm -hmm. and it's uh, in near Mill Valley, and it's run out of the California Film Institute.
2: Oh, uh California Film Institute. Yeah. You mean like uh, CalArts uh down in it's No,
3: it's a state organization. It's a state it's organization. It, oh, believe, okay. Yeah. Okay.
2: All right. We just landed.
4: Yes. And we don't know much about the festival till we yeah, get so there. We yes. Learned. Yeah, yeah. But, so we're but, first. We get we get,
2: stopped, we, get yeah. we get to hear we all of here first. This. Yes. But, but
3: one nice thing is that the Bill Graham Foundation who's out here is yes. supporting the film and uh, you know, I think they're actually sponsors of it the, you know, yeah. the festivals have different sponsors and they've announced it on their website and stuff. And we're really thrilled about that because it's, you know, it's great that his people appreciate our version of his story.
2: Yeah, well, he does play a big part in the in the overall story. Yeah. Uh, And we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, let's tell the diggers a little bit about each of you and your documentary film work to date. Uh, Molly, can you go first and just give us a a little of your background?
3: Well, um, I started out as an apprentice editor. I learned in the old fashioned way on film. I worked as an editor for many years and then
2: Yes, I and I and we did establish in the green room that you started under Martin Scorsese and working on After Hours. In I did with
3: uh, Thelma Schoonmaker, who's one of the great editors mm-hmm. of all time. Yes. So that mm-hmm. was a very good starting place. Um, and then I started making my own films, and uh, the main first film was about Ricky Jay, who's a sleight of hand artist, magician, character actor in most of the David Mamet films. He just died, sadly. Um in no- November November. Uh, um yeah. but uh so I made a film about him that Philip also was a producer on and um it took about twelve years, so that was a really oh, long Oh, to put together. That yeah, is
2: a long on time. and off
3: kind of process. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we made another feature about an artist photographer named Rosman Purcell. Oh yes, um, and then this one. So, and in the middle of doing all these feature length projects, we've also done a lot of shorter client work that Philip can yeah. tell you about when he talks about his start. Maybe.
2: Well, Philip, let's hear from you.
3: Yeah, well, I'm, that I'm, seemed
2: like a good segue. I'm relatively new to documentary,
4: in the sense that I started out working on feature films. In production, I was I was a PA on the film when Harry met Sally. Oh, okay. And then I kind of did locations and production management on a lot of low-budget films in New York, a lot of horror films. And then I kind of started producing rap videos, and I I did that while going to film school. Um, Molly and I both went to Columbia Film School. So while I was at film school, I was producing hip hop videos in New York, and that was kind of my education as a as a producer. So like every month, I did a different video. It was mostly it was. Um, if you remember, there's a producer named Herbie Azor, Herbie Lovebug Azor, and he had a whole bunch of hip hop acts like Salt and Pepper and Kid and Play, uh-huh. Moni Love, and people like that. So we did all those videos. So this
2: is the late 80s, early 90s yeah, type early of Early 90s. Uh, golden age of hip hop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, One of uh, the golden ages of hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. Hip hop's still going strong. So uh, that's yeah. a different story. I, I, I think some people might say that we are in a new golden age of of hip hop uh, in some ways. Mm
4: Oh, yeah. you disagree. <laughs> I, I, no, I haven't followed it that much. I was so I was so. Well,
2: I have a 19-year-old, and that's what in, he wow. listens to. And, ah. uh, and some of it's really good. Uh, I think uh, kind of like rock and roll did uh, in the 70s, there, there's now all these genres, these different types of hip-hop. Uh, it's split up into, you know, you yeah. like this and you like that. Um, uh, I've been educated a little bit in some of these uh, various forms, and I don't really want to sound like an old guy, but I guess I'm sounding like an old guy. Mm. So, So you started in the hip hop uh, producing uh, these videos for folks.
4: Yeah. And then I spent a lot of time making a low budget feature film and I ended up getting a job in advertising while I was doing that as a day job. And then it turned into kind of like a little career in advertising. And um, ironically, kind of as the as the Internet was taking off. I decided I, want to go out, I wanted to go out on my own and start making films for people that were not going to be industrial films like we had had, but kind of really high-quality films that people could put on their websites and stuff. This was kind of a new idea at the time, believe it or not. Yeah. And so we started a company called Particle Productions to do commercial films. And just to give you an example, we did the first film that Columbia Business School, Columbia University Business School, had on their website. Oh, wow. So at the time... They didn't have it. You know, now there are hundreds of them. Um, I have a friend who has, is an art gallerist named Jim Cohen, Jim and Jane Cohen in New York. We pitched the idea of doing films for their website, and they said yes, and, they, and that was the first videos that they had had. So it kind of took off in that sense, and it, um, the technology was changing, the internet was changing, and this whole kind of non, uh, non-narrative storytelling, documentary storytelling kind of took off. Uh huh. And so that's what we've been. And doing. you found yourself in that world. Yeah.
2: Okay. And then how did you and Molly get together?
4: Well, we we had both gone to film school, but we didn't know each other at the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But we met afterwards, and
3: we just had a lot of similar interests. Had a lot of similar and-
4: interests. Yeah. And we lived together, but we were doing kind of different work for the beginning, and then we kind of slowly started collaborating on on projects. Uh, We did a a PBS show together on a ballet dancer friend of ours. That
2: was part of American Masters, right? No, that
4: that was actually a show called In the Life,
2: Mm
4: -hmm. uh, which was a PBS show. And then we did some of the art pieces together, and then suddenly it just kind of um, grew. And we have complementary skills in a sense that Molly's the editor, the expert editor, and I have a producing background. So we kind of combine those things. I I also shoot a lot of the films, a lot of the stuff. So we kind of combine those skill sets. And I've noticed that um, that there are a lot of couples who work together in the film business and also in architecture. I noticed there's quite a few married couples and maybe it's because it's kind of an around the clock thing. Yeah. And you get to be together and yeah. And it makes it really fun.
2: Long hours uh, is required to make good art.
3: Yes.
4: Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it's 24 hours. There's always something happening. The computers, there's there's
2: files being transferred. <laughs> and there's, you know, <laughs> yeah.
4: there's always something yeah. happening yeah. around the clock.
1: So.
2: All right. So now why make a documentary on the mostly faceless men who promoted the uh, great rock roll shows during the classic rock period? What What was the initial inspiration for you?
3: Well, it was, this story was actually brought to us, which is... Um, a new thing for us by Ricky J's manager. So we got to know his manager over the years of making that film. Mm-hmm. And, it and turn- you said 12 years you were yes, working on that So film, we got so. to know him very well. Very well, I'm sure. And, um, he, most of his clients are music people. He's a veteran music manager, other than Ricky J and Nick Willenda. Those are his two non-music uh clients, which is sort of funny. Yeah. But anyway. Beam from uh, the, from so, the
2: flying Willendas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh my yeah.
4: gosh, okay. So So, yeah, yeah, so what Winston will say, I'm, I'm out of town, I'm going to Chicago, I'm gonna be standing on the, the roof of a skyscraper. <laughs> a high, skyscraper. high, high flying is, act, right. Nick right. is gonna be walking across a tightrope <laughs> yeah. with a blindfold. You're Right. I'm closing
3: oh. my eyes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so he came to us after we'd finished the Ricky Jay film and said, you know, I have an idea for a film. And we said, what? He said, there's this group of promoters that are really like the last of the great showmen. Uh, and they were so instrumental in creating the whole rock touring business and He's known them all for years and he, you know, that everybody in the music business knows them and has worked with them, but nobody outside knows them. So it it just sounded like a great idea. And through him and his partner, David Simoni and another agent, Steve Martin, not the comedian, but an agent, Uh um, they all got together as our executive producers. And between the three of them, they really knew all these people and introduced us. So we had this, immediate entree pretty much and um it was pretty great because we did some research but we approached it almost like an oral history you you know we really just did long interviews with these guys and then figured out what their story was through them telling us so we didn't we didn't really come into it with a preconceived notion of what the story was or we didn't have any specific point of view other than we'd heard that they're characters yeah. you know
2: and yes there are characters, Crazy. And
3: characters
4: and it's also I remember Winston saying this at the beginning I, he said no one could have a
2: career in music without working with these guys no one so that was kind of interesting. Well, certainly not the the great rock and roll period yeah. that we've come to know. Uh, I mean, there was rock and roll before uh, the Frank Barcelonas and the Bill Grahams and what have you. Right, right. But it, it was these short little one offs, these there was no. Artistry to it per se. It was just throw uh, you know a couple yeah. of guys up on a stage and do twenty minutes, and then throw the next act yeah. up and throw the next act. Everybody jump in the bus and go to the next city, sort of thing. Uh, there was no real thought into it uh, other than that. I would say, right, right,
4: right. Well, it's like as we'll get into. I mean, Stephen Van Zandt said this during the uh, Hall of Fame induction for Frank Barcelona. Like by the time you got this concert tour in place, musicians could tour the country, make money, then they would make their albums, then they'd be in the studio, then they'd be performing, then they'd have security of knowing they were going to go on tour. So it became kind of like this rock and roll lifestyle that I think helped produce that the, the amazing outpouring of music where they had to make albums all the time and support them through touring and just constantly creating stuff. Um, but I was also going to say that... I So it was a cycle. I think so. You know, one of the things that I'm struck is how hard these people had to work to be musicians to tour all the time and to make records and to, you know, it's it's a really around the clock kind of pursuit.
2: Oh, yeah, it, it is a lifestyle. There's, yeah. there's a reason that it's one of the most dangerous professions uh, oh. in longevity, uh, I should say, because it is. It's 24 uh, 7, 365. Uh, and certainly back in, in the old days, I mean, you know, now you have these established acts that, you know, can play by their own rules. But um, I think we're coming back to that. You know, uh, a young act literally just needs to load up the VW van and uh, go from city to city to city just to build a following. And, you know, they're not making that much money on the records anymore. Right. So it's right. literally tour, 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 which is the harder part of the of the equation. Right, right. Yeah. And so we kind of miss these guys. And I think you you make a point of that in the in the film as well. Uh, that was a big takeaway for me, is that, you know, how important they were and the fact that they're not really in charge anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. a it's a different world. But let's let's start at the beginning. The the film seems to begin with Frank Barton Barcelona when he started premier talent agency in 1964, right, um, which is a rather interesting year to begin a talent agency for rock and roll, wouldn't you say?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, that. this is what the point that's made in the film is that at that moment, the established music business kind of looked as at rock and roll as a passing fad yeah. that was dead. And it was just for the kids and it's not going anywhere. And this young guy, Frank Barcelona in the mailroom wants to be in charge of rock and roll,
2: let him do it. No one else wants Nobody to else it. wants to touch it. Yeah, we've I've heard many yeah. stories like yeah. that. I've talked to uh, a couple of the guys uh, from the wrecking crew uh, in L.A. And the reason uh-huh. that they got those gigs is because the established uh, session musicians really didn't uh, want to play on those. Yeah, roads. right. Yeah, that was a great movie about that. Uh, yeah.
4: yeah. So as as is, is in the film, then Frank Barcelona, actually, we go into it. He met his, his through his wife, who was a journalist, a British journalist. Who interviewed the Beatles? He met the Beatles. He booked them. Yeah, on June Ed, Harris. right? June, June Harris. Harris yeah. uh, who's fabulous in the film? And she she's a British journalist, the first person to interview the Beatles. And she came to New York and met Frank. And so Frank booked the Ed Sullivan show. So what what could be more seminal to the beginning of rock and roll than than being the person that booked the Beatles, the Beatles on, on Ed, Ed Sullivan. Sullivan? Right. And right. so then they did a concert in D.C., and there was a complete riot. Uh, inside and outside. And he went down there and he said, This is the beginning of something. He's uh, yeah. about to break. <laughs> this is not the end of a passing
2: fad. Oh, no. No. This was uh, the launch pad. You know, all systems go after that first small, very small Beatles uh, but, tour. I think they just hit New York, Washington, and Miami, if I remember right. And yeah. then back to New York again.
4: Yeah. But, you know, you could read about it a lot and see pictures, but I remember when I was a small child, my mother and her friend took us to see uh, the movie A Hard Day's Night at the local movie theater. Mm -hmm. And it was nonstop screaming in the movie theater, like people standing up screaming at the screen.
2: Yeah, to, to a bunch of people who can't hear you, yeah. which I always find interesting. People clap at the end of a movie. To, so, to, you know. to the
4: point where they, we had to leave. It was too loud. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, it wouldn't stop.
2: It was just like so was, pandemonium in the movie there. theater. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it just goes to show you the power of this, you know, and let's face it, the, it's the baby boom generation uh, that is coming up. Uh, there's a disposable income that uh, goes along with them and uh, some free time that they can now enjoy uh, this piece of entertainment that is built specifically specifically for them right yeah yeah Yeah. and so frank was kind of like the first guy that recognized this and uh, began to make uh, what turned out to be an industry i would say huh
4: yeah well he knew a lot of the british invasion bands because he went to england and he met them and i think that was a big part of it
2: yeah, to bring those over the those exotic Englishmen to American shores, uh, right?
4: <laughs> who were yeah. playing variants American. of American music. Yes. That no one, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, they turned it on its head. Right. Uh, actually, they ate up all those American blues records, and then started performing, as I like to say, performing them poorly, and in doing so, create a whole new sort of feel to the music of which they regurgitated back to America. Yeah, right? yeah.
4: yeah. I mean, I do think they brought their own character to it. I mean, oh this, yeah, there's so, a lot more of the course, Stones uh, than yeah. just copying those. Songs, although that was their goal yeah. at the right. beginning,
2: yeah, Chicago Blues for them, specifically, yeah, yeah, they were in the harmonica, yeah. And- yeah, yeah,
4: so he brought over all those groups, like the animals and Hermits Hermits and the who and and then he went around the country and started to meet really young people that he could trust to do the concert promotion. In other words, he didn't want to use the old guard that was there that were just interested. They didn't understand rock and roll. They didn't really care that much about the music. They probably were ripping him off, I imagine. And so he, he wanted to get a lot of young people who were in their early 20s to be like the local promoters
2: in each town. Right. Right. And in a weird sort of way, what I took from the, the film, it was almost like a, a mob boss mentality. OK, you got this territory and you got this territory and then you can't. You got that one down there, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, uh,
3: it's It was very much. I mean, there were there are other agents and other promoters. Obviously, we focused in this film on Frank and his. Tree, we call it the Frank yeah. Barcelona Tree, who had these major cities, but you know it really did work that way. And in the film, we have a very successful restaurant tour, Stephen Starr, who had been. Uh, trying to be a promoter in Philadelphia and really was squeezed out by Premier Talent and Electric Factory Concerts, yeah. who was, you know, Larry Magic. Right, right. Who was their preferred person. So mm-hmm.
2: it was a bit of a mob mentality. It was. It was, bit- <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> yeah. locked
3: up. Yeah. I mean, you know, certain venues and certain cities were definitely locked up yeah. by those people. I mean,
4: someone had said it's a mafia without violence, but. I
3: don't know. Right. The mafia
4: term has kind of taken over. What I think at that point it was like a collection of people and there was loyalty, but everyone's in their twenties. I mean, as one of the uh Irv Zuckerman, one of the promoters, was saying that the agents, the the musicians, the promoters were all the same age, which yeah. is kind of funny to think right. about.
2: Yeah, so they could all hang with each other. So it's like and... I'm gonna call my friend yeah. in, in
4: Chicago. Yeah. yeah,
2: and they would understand uh their 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 you know, what they were going through because they were probably going through the same sort of right. things at the yeah, time. Yeah, so. yeah. But, um, I, you know, I'm from Cleveland originally, so
4: when I was growing up, the Belkin Brothers. Oh, the Belkins, that's right. So I, I had a little affinity for what the story was about because I I realized, I hadn't thought about the Belkins in years, but I realized that they did every concert for the 70s. They were on the radio every 15 minutes. This weekend, Belkin Brothers presents Led Zeppelin every 15 minutes. I mean, so they they really controlled the town, but also they curated the music that was brought to the town. They had a huge impact on the cultural life for the young generation. Right. Um, and that's what these guys did. And we also learned, like, these, these are characters, you know, um, Bob Geldof, who's in the film, was kind of saying, you know, drummers have personalities, lead guitarists have personalities, and promoters have personalities. So they f- kind of fit right into the culture of rock. And what they love is they love selling tickets. They love creating events. They love getting people together. To see things, and um, that's what motivates them. So that's a really good good thing to have when you want to break a new a new art form.
2: Well, you pretty much described the uh, the biggest character to come out of this film, and just to come out of the promotion game as it is, uh, and that is our our local hero here in San Francisco, uh, Bill Graham. Right. I just don't see the game with <laughs> without looking at it through his lens, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. No, I, I really. Have a lot of. I've really grown to respect Bill
4: Graham. I didn't know much about him before the film.
2: Really, you didn't. Know? I did. Oh. I didn't. Uh, well, well, Molly, how about you? I mean, he and uh, Martin Scorsese were, yeah. were buddies. I yeah. mean,
3: uh, he I, even I threw knew. him
2: in a couple of his films.
3: Right. I knew some. But um, I didn't know that he was a Holocaust survivor. I didn't know that background. I didn't know. Yeah, that,
2: that is an amazing story, yeah. of his life, that, you know, his mom puts him uh, on a train uh, to get out of Nazi Germany just before she is uh, captured. Uh, he goes to France where they think he's going to be safe. And the Nazis are right on his tail. And at 10 years old, he needs to march across France and Spain, get on a ship and make his way to America. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
3: and and I believe his he was with his sister on that trip she, who died, she died. on yeah. the way. Yeah. So
2: Cole, I believe, was the the youngest uh, of, the, of the girls. Most of the other girls did survive though and uh, made it to America later after the war. But right. uh, but yeah, and um, he grew up in New York and uh, learned to uh, become an American.
4: But he loved to salsa dance. He loved yeah, the- yeah. <laughs> well, he learned up
2: that whole the, in the Catskills. Learned that whole uh, Latin thing. Yeah. And, uh, Uh, I think Tito Puente was one of his favorites and and all of that. And, uh, uh, there's a story that we learned about uh, him when we put him in our rock and archaeology podcast, and that is that he took a like a moped and traveled across from New York to San Francisco because his sister lived in San Francisco, which is why he ended up in San Francisco. He would go back and forth on this mo- moped. It would take him like three weeks to get across country. Can you imagine trying to do that? That's wow. I mean, you want to talk about. There's nothing going to stop you. Um, right. You know, as I said in the, in the podcast, once you've had the mo- Nazis on your tail at 10 years old across France and Spain, you know, you pretty much can do anything you damn well please.
4: Well, this, right? is, this is what Johnny Podell says in the film. He's an agent who knew Bill Graham. He describes him as he ran from the Nazis and kept on running. And the, dri- the drive right. never went away. The ne- right. drive never and went also, away. Yeah, he never stopped and he was uncompromising. And it's hard to imagine that kind of drive of, of what he did. Um, but for people that don't know, you know, he started out by booking
2: shows. Well, he, uh, he started off kind of as a failed actor, right? And then uh right, and then kind of hooked up with the mime troupe uh out here and saw that um if I if I remember right, they got arrested for performing a questionable play and uh, then they decided to throw a kind of a get out of jail party. And he saw how many people showed up and uh, then decided to go into the promotion business after that.
3: And I believe he brought the Grateful Dead to play for that party, even though they weren't yet called the Grateful Dead. Yeah, the Warlocks. Right. Right. That's part of what made him... See the potential of music, yeah,
2: and of course all the time. kids at the right. time that were f- right. you know coming into that little piece of San Francisco uh, called Hey, Ashbury, that he you know could provide entertainment for more than anything else, uh, starting with the with the Fillmore, uh, and then you know gravitating from there. But it's funny you guys didn't know who he was a- ahead of time. Now, of course, you know you're East Coast, I'm West Coast, and of course I would know uh, more about that. But um, you know he just becomes such this larger than life character uh he brings in light shows he puts a backstage together of comfort right uh, he's very concerned about the experience from the front of house he also puts these incredibly diverse uh acts together on these bills that would you know today I, you just wouldn't see
3: I, and I think that's the most one of the most amazing things about him is he had incredible taste and the breadth of his taste, and his, you know, insistence on educating his audience, you know, at, by bringing in yeah
2: separate different acts exactly that you, would expect, that, right?
3: you know that the blues didn't start with the Rolling Stones, you know, he just yeah he really was had a good sense of music history and was passionate about it and you know the famous thing is what i think santana says it in the film he used right. to say you know you can have your steak but you have to have your vegetables first or whatever <laughs> you know he was yes. sort of feeding yeah. people yeah um, and he,
4: he says in the film yeah. that he used rock and roll as right. bait to right. bring people in and then to educate them about the roots of rock and roll through blues and so forth
2: yeah. So that's that's kind of an important part of the right. film. And then he goes on to uh, to more national acts. In fact, I, you know, he he does set up in uh, in New York with Fillmore East. Was, was that a problem um, with the guys who were running uh, the East Coast at all? I, well,
3: I, I, I'm trying to remember. Well, I mean, I think Ron, uh, Ron Delzner yeah, wasn't I, happy about I, 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 it. I don't but...
4: think it was established at that point. There were other yeah. promoters. And um, we've heard stories where other people claimed it was their idea to do the film more and such and such. But I don't think Frank had anointed anyone at that point.
3: No, New York and L.A. were both kind of more complicated uh, in terms of there were different promoters at different times that Frank worked with specifically. And uh, I think Bill Graham already had quite a bit of power and cachet at that point And when he came in and yeah. I mean, a lot of so. it was,
4: yeah, a lot of it was the, uh, the same acts that had played out West, I think. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. And, um, so how, how do you put a film like this together? What is step one? I mean, we've established that the idea was given uh, to you from working on another film and obviously the interest was enough to cause the two of you to go, wow, this sounds like a great idea. So what do you do at that point? Listen to music and yeah. start listening to a lot of <laughs> wow, music. Wow, that's an easy job, yeah. man. All we right. We did. We, we started, brought out the records. We did. We, Inspiration is exactly. easy. All right.
3: And we did some reading and, you know, but we, we really started interviewing pretty early in the uh, process. You, we, did. you did. And, and we did. talked to people,
4: you know, right. who had been To the Fillmore, you know, a a friend of ours um, used to donate blood to get money to buy tickets to the Fillmore. (laughs)
2: That's dedication.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So so we kind of soaked up that era a little bit and then we started meeting people. So we went to we were in Cleveland for um, we were showing our other film at the Cleveland Film Festival, uh, the one
2: about Rosamund Purcell. And we. Oh, is that when you tried to get a hold of Jules and Mike Belton? Yeah. So So did you start with them? them. Were they the first one? We met
4: them and they were our first interviews. And that was great. And then, you know, everyone talks about Bill Graham and then everyone talks about Frank Barcelona. So you start to take notes and and see where the story's going.
3: And and they were all really interesting characters yeah. and actually our first cut it was more the story of each promoter. Um, because there's so many details that were fascinating that we ultimately you, you could
2: almost make a film on each one of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I even put them in in order of you know Frank uh, Barcelona, Bill Graham, Larry Magid, uh and then I put uh, Don Law, uh, yeah, and Arnie uh, Granite, uh, Jules and Mike Belkin, Ron Delsner. Uh, I mean, yeah, you almost could make a film on each one of them, couldn't you?
3: Right, and. um
4: well, they were all there. I mean, Ron right. Delsner uh, started his career working for the promoter that did the Beatles concerts at, in Forest Hills, Queens. So there right. he was on the stage with the Beatles. So again, it's kind of like this is the story of rock and roll and that these were the people that were there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because the they're beginning. all around the same age. And Larry
4: Larry Maggot had a whole story where he lived in New York and was was booking jazz acts and became friends with Miles Davis. They're, they were so immersed in music. Right. Um,
3: right. Larry started by sneaking into a radio
1: oh, right, um, right,
3: studio in Philadelphia late one night and met the DJ and started talking to the DJ. And then the DJ put him on air as a kid, you know, to talk about the music he liked. And so there, there was this real passion um, and very interesting things. Like Don Law, for example, his father, Don Law Sr., was an Englishman who came to the United States to be an adventurer and wanted to see cowboys and things like that and uh, ended up working for a company that made bowling balls and LPs.
4: With the same material. Oh,
2: the the and, mater- yeah. Acetate
3: yeah. or the... the and it was, and oh, then yeah. he started doing field recordings and he recorded Robert Johnson. I mean, the only recorded material that exists of Robert Johnson was recorded by, by Don, Don Law's father. So, it's Isn't really... Amazing? This yeah. is not in the film, by yeah. the way. Yeah, so, no,
2: yeah, yeah, that's not in the... You're, yeah. you're right. That's well, not there in the were, film.
3: There were so many things like that that ultimately... Yeah. I want to say that's in yeah.
2: Dallas or San Antonio. Uh, Texas. Yeah.
3: yeah it yeah, was somewhere yeah. in rural Texas where Robert Johnson was yeah, at the time. Yeah. And um but so Don Law
4: grew up in a house right. where you'd open the closet and records would fall out. He was yeah. just surrounded by music. So again, that that we had a little section where we told that story and then ultimately we found it just took away from the, the main thrust of the story. But but the the fact is that they're all so
2: deeply involved in music. In one way or so another. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah.
3: true. It's, it's, um, yeah. It's just so, kind of, yeah, so you
2: have the big guys of, of which there seems to be about nine, and almost all of them are men. Um, I think the only woman that really, uh, is, is a part of this game, and, and let's face it, 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 you know, it kind of was a, a man's game at the time, is Barbara Skydell. Yeah. You guys spend some time on her, so let's talk a little bit about her. Well, she was very beloved.
4: Yeah. She was, she was Frank Barcelona's right-hand person, and she passed away. Yeah, yeah. sadly, oh, we didn't get a oh
3: chance God. to interview her, but yeah. uh, she was very close to a lot of the acts, and really, I think John Bon Jovi said, yeah. she yeah. was our day-to-day, you know, so she yeah. was really, took them through all the aspects of touring and building a career, and, um, you know, it's to Frank Barcelona's credit, and a lot of the promoters said that. It's amazing, he just, put her in that position. You know, he he saw that she could do it. And so, you know, he was very unusual guy, I think. You know, he really did a lot of firsts and, you know, first things, and that was one of them. I mean, there were uh, other women like Shelley Lazar, who passed away recently, who was big in touring. There were other women and more in production, I think. But in terms of the agents, I think that was a big deal that Barbara Skydell was really powerful. Which is cool. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, all right. So you guys uh, start talking to uh, the promoters themselves that are still around, like Jules and Mike Belkin. Uh, uh, I think Larry Magid, you did as well. Uh, Arnie uh, Granite, you spend some time with him actually still in the business, although I believe he just retired, if I'm not mistaken.
3: Arnie. Uh, Arnie? I, no, he's, I think... he's doing Broadway. He ha, he's expanded. He has some, and we talk about it at the very end of the film. It's called Jam. Theatricals. Theatricals, and he's been very successful doing broad, producing Broadway shows and promoting. So, he's still doing stuff. Um, he's one of the few that did not sell his company to Live Nation or to you know yeah. that what became Live Nation. I, I don't think he'll ever retire. It's I don't not think in so his. These, these
4: people, they don't. I don't think so. No, they don't. There. Like yeah. he's he, he was trying to develop a new show where like young people would come in to the Broadway show and and there'd be a sign saying "Turn on your cell phones." Because that's going to be part of the show. Right. You know, right. so he's always trying to think of what people are into. And he did the dead bodies exhibits that yeah. went around
2: the country. Oh, he remember? did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, and he joked that he he liked it because he didn't get any calls in the middle of the night asking for <laughs> drugs. They, they were already, they were already, <laughs> they dead. were already drugged up. <laughs> that's exactly right. right. Um, they don't he, need them. I get it. Yeah. It's like I, they want to, they want to put on a show. Uh, these these guys. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, there, there was a quote uh, in there from uh, manager Peter Rudge uh, that I loved. And he said, you know, I, I worked with probably 30 presidents of Columbia, but only two promoters. That's pretty. Well, amazing.
4: that's that's kind of the the real the real guts of the story in the sense that uh, this is a guy, Peter Rudge, who who was a manager for the for the who and Leonard Skinner and the Stones. And is big in the business, and met Frank when he first came from England. And like he like he said, he he dealt with forty presidents of Columbia Records, but one promoter in Boston. You know, so so it's these promoters they started the business and they stayed in it until the end, yeah. which was when Live Nation yeah. came and
3: and and I love and a lot of
4: them still work for Live Nation after they right required. they sold yeah, yeah. they sold they, they, and then yeah. they continued to work for live Nation. right don so
3: was... law works for live nation right now so everybody works does. for irving
2: A- 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 azoff then yeah, yeah, guess, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he runs the whole goddamn thing so. but
3: um one of the things i love in the film is that we have these pictures towards the end of these groups of promoters and artists together from you know very early on to recently it's almost yeah. like they've been yeah. Doing working together for many, many years. You know. And a lot of people said that's so unusual to have that kind of longevity, longevity yeah. in a business. Um, and it's really special. Especially, especially a
2: fairly cutthroat business right, like that. Right,
3: right. Uh, that's why it's surprising. And they really are like family, a lot of them, I think, just because they've been through all this. And that loyalty, I mean... Yeah, A lot of people talked about Frank's, I guess, sort of moral code of, you know, loyalty and not screwing each other. And, you know, they were very, you know, obviously there were shady dealings going on (laughs) as there are in all businesses. I'm not trying to oh we,
2: we've heard good and bad especially with 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 Bill Graham and we did our oh, researching yeah. now it seems to me that most of the bad was just a an act that uh, he liked to throw on to make people fear him mm-hmm. uh, if you will but uh yeah you know yeah uh, it's a cash-based business isn't it Right. Right. Absolutely.
3: And that doesn't exist anymore in that way. Well, there's a a story about that in
4: the film, which I won't I won't give away, but it's just about, you know, if Bill Graham, it's cash business. So the manager of the band will say how many people were in the theater tonight. And Bill Graham would say a number wasn't necessarily (laughs) the the actual
2: number. Right. 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 So, um, yeah. Uh, and even though there seemed the next night like there was twice as many, right? Uh, but it's the same number. I don't understand. How did that <laughs> but, yeah, but
3: one yeah. thing I love about Bill too is a lot of people have said. I think it was recently we showed the film in Detroit, and a local Detroit promoter who's not in the film joined us and did Q and A with us, Rick Craniac. Yeah. And I think he was saying, Well, Bill was an actor and he was always acting. Yeah. And I remember um, right. June Barcelona right. saying, Oh yeah, half the time he and Frank would set it up ahead of time on these calls. Let's scream and yell when so and so comes into the office. You know, that a lot of it probably was put on to some extent. Um, which Unfortunately that's another thing. We didn't really weren't able to get into the film, but there are a lot of great stories yeah. like that. Oh well we'll yeah. put that
2: on the bonus DVD yeah, won't we? Exactly. Right, exactly. right, right. Yeah, right. June
3: had a lot of great stories. So she she's another one who could you could practically have a film about June. Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, it's funny is that if there's a villain in the film, it's kind of portrayed by a, a single person as the quote unquote the man, and that's Frank Rizzo. Uh, who was the Philadelphia Police Commissioner. Ah. Um, did you find that there were problems with, uh, with the establishment uh, stories like what you got about Frank Rizzo and some of these other promoters and, and their territories?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we dealt upon Frank Rizzo as the Philadelphia... Police of, Commissioner com, Police Commissioner who tried to close the electric, electric factory, factory. Yeah. and later mayor um, right. and was later mayor and and we do have promoters talking about how there was something scary at the time about rock and roll bands and concerts and people coming to town and uh, it was part of the um, the the danger of rock and roll yeah. I guess Yeah, and, and, and the
3: Belkins talked about how for the first yeah. several years there was always tear gas and fights and the police and they had to bring in people on horseback and, yeah. you know, so it was pretty or, rough, I think, in a lot of
4: or, And even cases. on the lighter side, people used to come up to them and say, why are you charging? Why are you charging <laughs> for the music? Like, you're the man, you shouldn't be charging. And they would have to explain that you have to pay things like rent. And yeah, rent uh, lighting,
2: or, uh, you know, yeah. sound, electricity, you know. This is, yeah.
4: Again, it was just different. And uh, I, think, I think when they started booking these 10, 20,000 seat halls, it was new. It was just a whole new thing in terms of. Oh, that, when you got to right. the uh, the arenas. So so Genesis is playing, uh, public hall, ten thousand seats, and suddenly you have you don't have people coming to the opera. You have young kids coming and trying to break in, and it smoking was pot. smoking pot and um, climbing up the, the side of the wall <laughs> to try to break through a window. Yeah, or um, or knock
2: down a fence to yeah, get into yeah. uh, a uh, an amphitheater or what have you. Yeah, so yeah, uh, I guess we just don't get much of that anymore, do well, we? Well, it's
4: like also Don Law makes the thing that there used to be police guarding the stage, like when you see the old films of the Stones. That's but right. That's a there's good police part of the film. in front of yeah. the stage. Yeah, and invariably there'd be a fight, and then the show would be canceled. And I did see an interview with the Stones where they were saying that most shows would be canceled after twenty minutes. In those early in those shows. early shows, yeah, They'd the police would they, they would have enough of it they go be okay like a Ryan,
3: Ryan, enough. and then it'd be over and, and, and yeah jump up and uh, attack them on the stage and the cops would yeah. jump up whereas
2: private security could identify the troublemaker go out and deal with them and remove them and uh, everything could go on i right? mean yeah the,
4: the hell's angels were the dark side of that but that that was kind of like uh, an innovation we don't think of it as an innovation right. but the idea of like let's not have the police let's have our own peer group security, they called it. People yeah. that are about the the same age as the people.
3: In T bouncers. And you know, not,
4: more like you know. bouncer type characters. And they're the ones that will keep order. And it worked. So it's all these funny things that we we couldn't even really think of as innovations now. Like like having like you were saying, having food backstage was kind of an innovation. Having yeah. catering yeah. or having yeah. having a theme. We were gonna we were gonna put this in, but again it didn't make it in like um, Irv Zuckerman would have ice cream, make your own Sunday. <laughs> which sounds so silly, but the, the band members loved it. Of course. They loved it Yeah, because they're they're in hotel rooms, they're eating lousy food, they're not seeing anybody, and then somehow- There's uh, an ice cream Sunday machine. And this whole idea yeah. of setting up a really, like a fancy dressing room, which is a big thing that Bill Grant, we were just in Detroit showing the film, yeah. and then uh, we went to the Motown Museum, which was amazing, if you have a chance to go to see it. But they were discussing how when the Stones came to town once- Bill Graham went to the Motown Museum and got a bunch of, got a jukebox filled with Motown hits. Got kind of
2: paraphernalia,
3: photographs. Photographs. It was actually to design great.
4: the Stones' yeah. dressing room. You know, they're very, yeah. they're very famous yeah. for having fancy dressing rooms. Oh, they're right.
2: designed. Yeah. Now individual fancy dressing right. rooms. <laughs> but right. but right. I, yeah.
3: I love that it was about the music. It wasn't about fancy furniture or whatever. You know, it was Motown. Right. It was yeah, yeah. The oh, town. the, the
2: jukebox in, must have been the greatest right. of, the thing that they had back there. Yeah. Right. You can just
3: imagine Ronnie and Oh yeah,
4: oh yeah, Ronnie Keith.
3: But that was Bill. I mean, an actual was Rick Craniac who actually got the stuff because he was the local promoter. He was the local promoter. That Bill Graham was working with for that concert. Yeah. But it was Bill who negotiated that and said, you got to do something special and it yeah. should be this well, or that. I mean, he really was into the, uh, the culture and, and the that, art of it.
4: Larry Maggot tells a funny story, not, not in the film, about once Mick Jagger said, okay, for this stadium, for this show, I want to come out on an elephant. I want to come out on an elephant. And so... It's his job to find the elephant. Where is there a circus nearby? How can we fly in the elephant? What kind of stage do we have to build so it can walk on the stage? How do we have to secure it so that it doesn't cause a catastrophe? And then the next day, Mick said... um, Actually, I don't want to do The Elephant.
0: Thank God. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do want to bring up another name that uh, you guys exposed in that. And and again, this is going to—it's a little West Coast skewed here, but Joshua White, who kind of is very responsible for bringing a light show into the idea of a concert setting. And now, I mean, you know, he's doing this very rudimentary, uh, you would almost say antiquated type of light shows at the time. But um, but it's pretty amazing how how he came in and and brought in some of this that
4: you guys exposed. He was he was we interviewed him. He was fascinating. He was just so interesting. But like a lot of those people, he was a theater person um, and he graduated from theater school from college and he was on the he was on the East Coast. Right.
3: I think he went to school at Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, And yeah. then he was in New York. I, I can't remember. York, but... Or maybe he first worked with Bill at Tanglewood. I think that's where he met Bill, was up at but, but, Tanglewood. Yeah. But,
4: but he makes the point, like, right. in those days, there was no lighting. It was just a follow lighting, spot. A
2: couple of follow spots, All right, And right. a curtain. Yeah.
4: And I'm not sure how he came up with the idea or how he introduced it, but he, but he introduced this idea of doing this kind of colored, psychedelic light show, projecting light through Various oils and different colored pigments and stuff. We show it in the movie. It's very rudimentary, but it's very psychedelic. And Bill Graham is a showman. And he said, I want to do this. Get me more of that. Get me more. (laughs) And and when you look at the old posters, that's another thing that Bill Graham did was kind of invent Mm -hmm. this beautiful... Uh, art form of the of the rock and roll poster. But but um, Joshua White's name is at the top, you know, featuring the Joshua Light Show. Right. So it became kind of a big deal. And it was just part of the whole aesthetic of the experience. And, yeah. and
3: I believe Josh said that part of the impetus for that was the Fillmore East because it was a theater with seats. Mm. Right. A lot of the, like the Fillmore West or different venues on the West Coast, you could just walk around and dance and have yeah, a Yeah, more of a general mission. type of situation. But with right. seats, he, they realized you got to have more of a show if people have to sit in their seats, you know. Right. So right. I think that was part of what got them started yeah. on that. And then it took off and became very popular, obviously.
2: Well, that that brings me to another point that, that you guys uh, show in there, and that's that Frank and Barbara insisted that a stage act be more than just your last hit record, I think is the quote. Uh, and 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 that kind of yeah. changes the 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 people that are getting promoted uh, at that point. It is it is the bands that are bringing more to it than just you know a, a top forty hit. Yeah, right?
4: well that's that's a big part of rock and roll. Again, it's hard to look at that as an innovation at the time, but actually, and there's a whole story in the film about actually having one person give a concert was a new thing. You know, concerts in those days before. Frank was kind of vaudeville style.
2: Yeah, it was a, a tour, a group of, 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 of people that would all They'd come be doing together. One or two right. hits. Yeah.
4: And there were juggling acts and yeah. there was an MC and it was all the top five. Kind of
2: like what you'd see on The Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah, well, right? yeah.
4: I think The Ed Sullivan Show is that. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. It is yeah. that. Um, and so it was these guys, some of these promoters had the idea of like, We want to, we think uh, Deep Purple is the story in the film. We think Deep Purple can do a whole show and people will come and see them. And and pay the
2: money for that one
4: act. And the theater owners were saying, no way, that's impossible. How could you even think that? So, so that was part of it. But then, then this whole idea of Frank developing this, you know, there's, you know, the show, the the title, the shows, the thing actually comes from an article that Frank wrote in a trade publication where he kind of gives guidance to young musicians about how to perform and, you know, how to behave when you're on stage. Don't turn your back to the audience. Play two yes. great numbers before you say a word. All these kinds of little things that are probably taken for granted, but the, like the stagecraft of the show. And, you know, we have a, we have a scene of uh, Elton John. We have a clip of Elton John playing in the film where he is, like, jumping on the piano. He's using his feet. He's It's a real performance. He's putting everything he's got into that moment on stage. And it's, you don't see that uh, from the record. I think that was kind of what Frank was all about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and then the bands that followed, uh, you had to do the same thing to keep up with the competition, uh, otherwise you would be left behind. So and let's talk about some of the artists because not only do you get to talk to the the surviving uh, promoters that are still out there, uh, because we've lost, um, you know, many of them, uh, but you also got to talk to some of the artists that worked with them uh, out there. How did you get a chance to get in front of people like John Bon Jovi and Bob Geldof and Santana?
3: Well, uh, mostly through our promoters. I mean, sorry, the managers, our executive producers who had contacts to both Geldof and Bon Jovi. um, And Santana, we got... um, Santana's a different story. That that
4: came through... You know, the funder for the film is BMG, the record company. Yeah. And when we we kind of were thinking, who do we want to get? We need one more person. And um, we came up with Santana, who is kind of integral to the story, but he was originally, you know, he, he went from an audience member in the film war to a headliner at Woodstock. So we, somebody at the record company knew his manager. We, we corresponded for many, many months. And then one day we got an email in New York city saying, okay, Carlos, you know, wants to talk about Bill Graham. He'll give you 30 minutes next Friday in Vegas. You know, from eleven to eleven thirty, so we flew out to Vegas. Pack up the equipment. Yeah, Yeah. get on the plane to Vegas, Uh and we talked with him, and he 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 loves Bill Graham, and and
0: was so happy to talk about him. So
3: it was a fantastic half hour. I mean, he really he became our muse for the project because just his energy and he was just so great and inspiring in so many ways. But it but it really was the uh, sort of a distilled version of the whole story our film was telling, which was so great, yeah. you know, that the the role that Bill Graham had in his career was just huge.
4: Yeah. And um, he goes into that, yeah. like, Bill would give you a report card after every show, and he'd say, right. you can't close with that number. This song goes on too long. <laughs> play that one up front you know he would he would kind of um yeah give give a report card a re- yeah. literally a report uh, card after was, every show yeah. yeah and he just wanted yeah. it to be great uh John Bon Jovi came through Winston uh, our executive producer and he they had met at a party they knew each other they right. worked together on music publishing and stuff and when John Bon Jovi heard about the film he said I want to be in it he kind of came at the tail end right but he
2: of, of this great period, of this, of this yeah. period, yeah. but
4: he he knew all these people, so yeah. he he was like he was like our hero. He came in and
3: he really wanted and, to pay uh, tribute to these people, and and it was great because we thought, you know, he wouldn't have been the first person we thought of, but and Winston wouldn't have either, but since he just happened to start talking to him about it he was very passionate about it bon jovi and you know he loved barbara and frank and all these people right and he really oh yeah, well, his passion yeah. just comes again yeah. through the was, screen was, this is serious yeah. he's he's I mean,
2: very very yeah. very real about it. he
4: was he was right he, there i mean he
3: he was fantastic yeah.
4: he I tells mean, a story in the film where he got a job as a teenager um helping pass out playbills at a concert venue and then he'd get to see the shows for free and at backstage one night, he met Frank and Barbara, who were larger than life in his eyes. And he told Barbara that his dream was to play in that venue, Brendan Byrne Arena, in New Jersey, which of course he did.
2: <laughs> well, she took one look at him and said, yeah, yeah.
4: "Yeah, I think you could make I think it. You can do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. You have the look." <laughs> but yeah. so he, but he was just—it um, it was a real pleasure having yeah. him because he—he he, he went to Cleveland. He knew the promoters. He—he he knew Ron Delsner. He told wonderful stories about. About these guys and how important they were to his career, to selling it. To, he, like he, like it he exists in the film. They knew your value, and they knew what it take to to sell a ticket. They knew what it took to sell a ticket.
3: And and you know, Ron Delsner was at his wedding. He said, you know, yeah. they really yeah were yeah that close. close. They're very yeah. close. Yeah. 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 yeah
2: yeah. And and the, and that's the point is that these promoters were you know really there to help you. Put on the best show you possibly could. And right. somebody like John Bon Jovi, you know, would constantly try to put on the the best show that uh, is out on the road uh, at the time. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I didn't believe it. Uh, and I got dragged to a John Bon Jovi show when I was, uh, you know, at the, that age of like. <laughs> come on give me yeah. a break and i was totally blown away uh so i i totally understand well
4: i mean that's that's his thing now i guess he had one of the highest grossing tours i guess in the last couple yeah. of years yeah. he was yeah. just
2: inducted to the rock and roll
4: hall of fame yeah so he's yeah he's, he's riding getting, high he's getting his
2: due so uh and then bob Geldof, or excuse me sir bob, Geldof, <laughs> sir bob Geldof. Uh, who you know, let's face it is uh responsible for probably the greatest live show ever put on in the rock and roll age maybe ever yeah
3: yeah, he was fantastic also he he was just so interesting and smart i thought um david simoni who's one of our executive producers who's british worked with him has known him for years and again it was kind of a touch and go thing you know uh, Dave, he doesn't have email. Yeah, he doesn't uh, do email. Doesn't. You just have to call him and catch him. <laughs> oh, really? You know? Yeah. Oh, anyway, now I so, know the secret. Yeah, All exactly. Right. <laughs> and so it was kind of amazing that we actually got to interview him. And it was so substantive. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. It's like we had a list of questions. I don't think we even asked that. Maybe we asked the first one and he just talked and basically hit every point we were going to ask him about. I mean, he just, he got it. He got what it was about. He's obviously thought about this, all these uh, stories and issues so much. and has such an interesting historical perspective and is so, articulate i just yeah. i thought he was amazing well, I, I think
2: he and and, and harvey goldsmith who, who kind of give that uk perspective uh, which is very different than the american yeah. uh, promoters wouldn't you say yeah
4: i loved well, harvey, harvey was, he great. was great um i mean harvey's
2: famous story is
4: that he saw jimi hendrix in london on one of these vaudeville bills, where he was the opening act, Ah. and then there was uh, other acts, and then there was a a juggler, and then Engelbert Humperdinck was the headliner. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
3: uh, But Harvey is the uh, one who had to convince the A-circuit in England to play Deep Purple for one, you know, two hours or whatever, as opposed to...
4: But uh, Bob Bob Geldof also puts a lot of this stuff in perspective about the art form of rock. The 50 year pop, as he called it, that he says is past. And so he's really was great for kind of giving some history to it and also the importance of the promoters. And as he said, rock and roll couldn't happen without these guys. There could be no San Francisco scene without Bill Graham. And so he was really. Uh,
2: he, lot, he, he hit the nail on that. the head yeah. uh both uh, uh of the times and the passing of the times mm-hmm. uh, i thought um but what I, what i want to ask you about is is again that you know he's responsible for putting on you know this incredible show on two continents with a billion people tuned in to watch uh in 1985
4: yeah yet it was so interesting that he was saying that he wanted the show To have all the resonances of the history of rock, so that anyone of any age group from the 50s to the 80s could enjoy it. Yeah, which I thought was that was so interesting. That's why he had wanted originally Shea Stadium to be the, of course, because the Beatles played there, and that was being refurbished, so he couldn't do that. But just his thinking about. About what this was going to be was very uh, ahead of its time, I think.
2: Yeah, incredibly ahead of yeah, its time. Yeah. I mean, to do the satellite alone, or well, even to think of uh, that, is is right. is you know at at that moment was really, um, uh, you know, it's a moonshot. Uh, but that's when when you get down. down I to
4: mean, that. that that's kind of true of all the promoters in a way. They, like they think big and they just keep thinking big. You know, one of my favorite stories in the film is uh, the story of Larry Magid um, convincing Bruce Springsteen to do a stadium show you know which was a new thing at the time and Bruce yeah. was adamantly not going to do a stadium show he does intimate
2: yeah performances yeah. He he's not it's church of yeah. bruce so so you, you got to go to the altar you got to yeah, go to yeah. church of bruce right so um how are you going to do that in the stadium so they just
4: think big and so you know live aid has to be the uh, the award for Thinking Big.
2: Oh, God. Yeah. It has not been surpassed uh, uh, at this point. So, all right. So, why do you guys think there's so much interest in the age of rock and roll these days? I mean, yeah. there's your movie. Uh, there are several other documentaries. There's now, uh, you know, I mean, let's face there it, there are but, other
4: rock and roll documentaries. Well, we
2: won't talk about them today, <laughs> but there's Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, obviously. Yeah, was good a, timing. A big hit. Uh, yeah. yeah the, the Elton John one is coming up. Motley Crue just had one on. Uh, on Netflix. Uh, what, why do you think that is? Well, because I, I think, I think
4: uh, as we were talking about before the podcast, that, that, that when you look at rock as a, a great art form, like, like any other great art form, and the, the effect it had, when you, when you look back at it like historically, you, you begin to realize that there's so much to it, and there's so much to explore. This is what I think. So when you think it had such a monumental effect on culture... And humanity. So you can discuss how was that guitar made and how was that recording made and how was that you can kind of kind of go into every detail about it, I think. Um, and then this, this, our story is kind of one unknown chapter.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In that way.
3: And and also, I think I'm just looking on your table at this David Bowie book. Yeah. We're starting to lose some of the great heroes. And um,
2: it's time has passed. Yeah, yeah. And
3: I think that really makes people look back and sort of appreciate the depth that they might not have before yeah. of what this music meant to people and what going to concerts meant and you know. yeah
4: when we, we were at the rock and roll hall of fame in cleveland talking to the people there and one of them referred to rock and roll as a messy art form which i thought was so interesting to think of it well just that's part of what we but it's american of, i mean that's, that's the whole what we point. got it's, out of this film it's, it's
2: democracy it's music democratization yeah. of music yeah. you know pretty much you know learn three chords and anybody can do it sort of thing which is you know uniquely an american ideal that you can just pick yourself up and be anybody you want to be that is an unusual concept uh, for a society well uh, there's so much to it you know the, the freedom that it gave yeah
4: the effect it had on people um, so it is really something that can just be really thought about as, as a great art form that had huge effect in the and, world.
3: And I do think, you know, Bob Geldof makes the point that not that music isn't important now, but that there are, you know, there's so many different modes of getting culture now. And, right, you right. know, social media, and there's so much more access to everything that it it, it doesn't have that same pedestal almost that it had in our day or you know in that 50 year period when yeah. either were records you couldn't look up the only thing you knew about people was on the you know what you could read on the, the liner the, yeah, notes, line notes or yeah, read yeah. in Rolling Stone or you know it wasn't like you could just google people and find out who they were and it was just a very different moment um, than, than today and if
4: you're in a town like Cleveland there is no internet so that the circus is coming to town and it's called a rock and roll show, you know, that the Belkins are putting on. And so that's, that's what's coming into town. That's your way of, of seeing what's going on in the world. And, uh, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to rock and roll, I think.
2: Yeah. And and you guys have found another new wrinkle uh, to present to people, especially those of us who are, you know, uh, just so interested in in every facet of uh, of the game and what it meant and why it's a thing. And I think what we're doing is we're all kind of, you know, I think we've realized the age is passed and it's in amber and we can now look at it um, kind of like historians do and say, oh, these pieces fit together this way and that way. And, you know, we're creating that first real, uh, complete history of uh of of the art form and right I, I think that's what's happening here so all right so i have to ask you uh, uh, one last thing about about the film which i found really interesting so you know we talked to, you know about the uh the the promoters themselves and the ability for you guys to sit down and talk to them uh the stories that come out uh the uh, couple of rock stars that uh, that gave you their time as well but what about the animation pieces how did you guys come up with that oh so glad you asked that we we know someone named Gary Leib
4: who is he uh, is a musician and comic book artist and graphic novelist. He was in a band called Rubber Radio. Rodeo. Rodeo. Rubber Rodeo. Excuse me. That had a hit in the eighties, and he did music videos back then. Uh, so he's really tied into the sensibility, and he do, does animation for movies. He did American Splendor, the animation for oh, that. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. He did the animation for. Um,
3: American Ultra. American Ultra. That has Jesse Eisenberg plays a character who yeah. draws comics, and so. Gary Lieb did the artwork for that.
4: But he, he is just, he's yeah. a creature of that time, and he's got impeccable taste. And so we'd sit down with him, and we would watch the movie, and we would discuss what he could do. You know, we have a thing where uh, we wanted the animation to mean something. We wanted it to... To say something about the time period and the style of the of the of the time and, yeah and to not just be a filler you know so we would watch and he would we would bounce ideas back and forth i mean there was a funny thing we, we got this uh we, we found footage of the early electric factory you know which is a whole other process in itself finding the archival footage but there's a scene where someone is is greeting people at the door and and she opens her mouth and and Gary says, you know, I can, I can animate that. I can go into her mouth and like <laughs> right. into her, into
2: her brain.
3: Right. Yeah. And that's like psychedelic. And psychedelic. Yeah. And and it, said, great. It, it gives you the time right. It right. Can put you, put
2: you there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was like, I didn't, I didn't yeah. think of that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it was a great collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the best kind of co- collaboration when somebody can bring something you couldn't even think of, Yeah, you know, yeah. and so, um, but I think that, Using also all that psychedelic material from the period was really great, too. The posters and a lot of poster artists were very generous in in giving us material and happy that we were using it, which was really neat.
4: Um, Yeah, I mean, a lot of the film is about the the kind of look and feel and texture of the time. A lot of photographers, we have a lot of great rock and roll photography that we've gotten from many different photographers. We we met uh, a woman named Amelie Rothschild, who was the in-house photographer at the Fillmore when she was a college student, Fillmore East. Uh Uh-huh. And so she was at every show, and we have about 100 of her images in the film. Plus, she was also filmed—she filmed she filmed 16 millimeter. So we have a, a shot of Hendrix that she filmed standing, like, a foot away from him when no one thought it was strange to be on stage a foot away from Hendrix. Right, right, um, right. So that was kind of the fun, gathering these different, these different pieces.
2: And finally, of course, it's filled with great music. right. Um. Glad right, so. you yeah. guys chose some good, uh, some good songs, Sarah. I think the Kinks, "You Really Got Me," "Living in the Past," Jethro Tull, Creek yeah. Alley," uh, from Mamas and Papas, uh, "Hey Joe," the band "Suffragette City Live," "Tombstone Blues" by oh. Dylan, "White Rabbit." I mean, I I could go on and on and on, but really, really a great choice of music.
4: Oh, it was today. it was really fun. It was really fun to listen to the music of that time. A lot of it is uh, a lot of the artists that were the touring artists. That you we'd see on the posters. Right. A lot of stuff we just knew and wanted wanted thought was appropriate. You know, we uh, uh Rock and Roll Hoochie coo you know, Rick Derringer. Yeah. Yeah. Um not in the film, but but Rick Derringer was managed by Frank. So uh, it's sort and of mere talent.
3: Frank's theme song is how right. we yeah. thought of it. So, <laughs> yeah. so we
4: tried
2: to have connections.
3: Yeah.
4: Um and how we use so that music. was
2: that was fuel for those 18 hour days right oh exactly. yes yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> the so, best. it was
3: so fun listening to so that. making a
2: rock and roll documentary sounds easy you just need good rock and roll <laughs> right. right exactly it's a big
3: part of it definitely. <laughs> yeah,
2: definitely
4: yeah but there's no yeah I mean that's that's getting back to what is rock and roll and what is the art of rock and roll when you're actually listening to these songs they are little little pieces precious pieces of art yes and you realize how where they came from you know like just the mamas and the papas. I mean, just... They oh, must the have, Creek Alley song tells a, whole,
2: tells a whole story about whole themselves story. right there. Yeah. And
4: the beauty of how they do it and just the yeah. technical achievement of it and how it sounds and the story it tells. And, you know, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind thing. It's amazing. Yeah. The whole thing's amazing. All right. Where can folks find the film now? Well, it, it, right now we're doing our festival run. So it's just appearing at festivals. We've played in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and Detroit, and Cleveland. And now we're here in Marin County. And we're, we're still figuring out how the film's going to be distributed. So we don't, we don't have news on that yet, but we hope to soon. But um, if you look for it, hopefully it will be available in theaters or streaming.
3: The show's the thing The, show,
4: the show's the thing.com. will have news and information. Right. And yeah. Information
3: mm-hmm. about
2: it. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah. yeah. And hopefully there'll be there'll be something happening really soon. I can't imagine it not being uh out and available for everybody. And of course you'll get back to me and let me know and I'll let our diggers know. Oh of course. More great. More That's fun. great. That'll so, be great. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So what's next for uh, you, Molly and Philip?
3: Um, we are yeah. working on a couple of different projects, which we tend to do. We do a lot of things at once because things take a long time. Yeah. Well, but, You're not
2: going to uh, wait to get paid but, for 12 years all yeah, the time. Yeah, right? exactly.
3: <laughs> but right now um, we are focusing on a film about Art Spiegelman, um, which we're very excited about. He's the, some say, father of the graphic novel. He may dispute that himself. Oh. Um, but he did mouse, and oh, yes. uh, he also yeah. was the editor of a magazine called Raw in the '80s, which presented the work of many of the now renowned yeah. graphic artists. Um, yeah, I mean, like I mean, Chris Ware and Charles Burns, and um, he's. But he's a real comics aficionado. Aside from yeah. being a great practitioner, he's he's somebody steeped in the history of his medium and it's he's yeah. fascinating. So so it's
4: a little bit of the same period as shows the thing. You know, it's about how underground comics became the graphic novel. Yeah. and became accepted as a medium where like nowadays every movie is, is based on a comic book and art Spiegelman kind of shepherded it in the adult comic book with Mouse which was about his uh, parents experience in, in the Holocaust during the Holocaust and, it won, right, yeah. and he says at the time it was it was it was so outrageous that someone would make a comic book about the holocaust with mice with as mice the,
2: the main characters right yeah
4: with, with mice yeah. mice playing uh, the jews and yeah. ca- and uh,
3: cats are the nazis playing the nazis
4: but of course there's a whole history of of comics and that mickey mouse was a mouse and a lot of the early comic book characters were animals so there's kind of a lot going on in in that configuration you know more than just him choosing that but he's uh so he's kind of a, a, an expert in the field of, of comics. And so we're, we're putting our records
2: aside and we're bringing our comic books out now. Well, nice. I look forward yeah. to, uh, to seeing that when it's uh, done and out. Uh, Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan, thanks so much for being with us today on Deeper Digs and Rock. Thank you. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you. Let's hear it for Molly and Philip. I must say, not only did we have a fantastic interview, we extended it into a fun night talking movies and rock and roll. And then uh, we did the premiere at Docklands uh, for more. So I I can tell you, the crowd responded well to the film. It was a packed house. Hopefully there were a few buyers out there in the audience willing to pick it up and get it out into wide release. It's a great story of a cast of characters most responsible for making the touring business we still live in today. Before Barcelona, Graham, and the others, think uh, Cavalcade of Stars, where 10 or 15 acts go from town to town in a shitty bus, playing their 10 or 20-minute string of hits only, and then off to the next stop. So really, we have these promoters to thank for inventing the modern concert business. So glad I was lucky enough to see the documentary early, and even though it's not widely available at present, we will keep you all up to speed on its release when I hear uh, the when and where's. Seeing the film got me thinking about this uh, new age of rock and roll we are in today. I've been mulling this thought for a while now. Um, Yeah, I I believe uh, rock and roll, in a weird way, is on the rise again, but it's doing so with a new wrinkle. Uh, we see it around here in our shows and, uh, and hear from our fan response. While the recording uh, business is perhaps not where it is for this particular music, we all can find some quality at our favorite local venues. Um, but really, where I see rock and roll killing it is in the cinema. Uh, Think Bohemian Rhapsody and the just recently released Rocketman. Both are box office winners, Uh, even Academy Award winners. Think Broadway or The Dirt on Netflix. But also all the documentaries being pushed out. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Netflix released Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese that is getting rave reviews. All of this tells me that artistically, especially in composition of song, it isn't exactly exciting. Um, But in discovery and, of course, nostalgia, uh, there is a lot happening. Hopefully, this trend will bring more stories out for fans like you and me. All right. Uh, Keep an eye and ear out for the Shows the Thing, the legendary promoters of rock by Molly Bernstein and Philip Dolan at film festivals. And of course, we will let you know when it is widely available. Okay, fade to black. The curtain comes down and the lights go up next week. We are talking to legendary songwriter Chip Taylor, who is out touring with a new album called Whiskey Salesman. Until then, you know what to do. Keep up the rockin'.
1: Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please... Purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the R N R A P. We are on Instagram at R N R Archaeology. Tweet us at rnrarchaeology. N R Archaeology.